Today's episode is sponsored by Struggle Snuggles Ball Pythons. Struggle Snuggle is a small hobbyist breeder who wants to share the joy of ball pythons with new and experienced snake enthusiasts. Struggle Snuggle offers different types of morphs and standard non-morph pythons. Struggle Snuggle will offer insight on the first-time python owners and is available via email for questions on the continuation for healthy care of your new python. You can reach Struggle Snuggle through his Instagram at strugglesnuggle32257. That's strugglesnuggle32257. So you can get a look at the different type of snakes that he does own. Again, strugglesnuggle32257. His Instagram handle will be in the show notes. Now let's get on with the show. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 114 of the Graveyard Grumbler podcast. I am your host, Tino Romero Jr., a.k.a. the Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode is about, you know, this today's episode is actually about something that I wanted to learn about. I've been wanting to learn about this person for several years now. I kind of knew the surface of what this person did and who he was. But, you know, I wanted to do more. And what better place to share my information than on my podcast, right? Right. So today's episode, we are going to do it about on H.H. Holmes. You're thinking, well, Tino, isn't that? Yes, it's the same guy. But, you know, it's not what I thought it was going to be, which honestly, I was kind of disappointed. But at the same time, my hats are off to this guy. So let's go ahead and get into this episode, episode 114. And it is going to be on H.H. Holmes. Oh, Albert, my boy. So for the episode that you requested about the Whitakers, it's going to be a little time before I can get to that. There is literally zero to very little information that I can find on that family from West Virginia. I know the gist. I was watching the documentary on it. But as far as actual text that I can I can uh, manipulate into my notes, it's kind of difficult since there's not very much reports on that family. So I haven't forgotten about you. I am working on that episode. I just, I'm searching the web far and wide on exactly on what information I can get on this family from West Virginia. So I haven't forgotten about you. Just going to take some time. So let's go ahead and get into this episode. Who is H.H. Holmes? Holmes was born as Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire on May 16th, 1861 to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price both of whom were descended from the first English immigrants in the area. I'm going to tell you something right now. I like my name. I love my, I love how it just rolls off the tongue. But I'm telling you right now, if my dad had left me with that last name, Mudget, M-U-D-G-E-T-T, I would be pissed. I would be more upset than a rattlesnake in the summer on the corner of someone's patio with a fucking broom coming at me. That's how pissed off I would be. And then on top of that, you're going to tell me that that uh, that the mom's name is Theodate? T-H-E-O-D-A-T-E? Theodate Page Price? Come on. what? Who, who even thought of these goddamn names? I'm about to name my son Levi Horton Mudgett. Oh, my. I think I'm going to name my daughter Theodate. It's such a defined name. I declare we shall name her Theodate. All the boys are going to go wild over him. Excuse me, over her. Boy, I tell you, I'd be pissed, number one. I wouldn't blame this guy for doing what he did after a name like Mudget. Fuck that. <laughs> Mudget, was, 
Mudgett was his parents' third-born child. He had an older sister, Ellen, an older brother, Arthur, a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. Holmes's father was, a, was from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, trader, and house painter. His parents were devout Methodists. You know, you got, you got to stay on your ground. You got to do what you do. You got to get that money, honey. Get that money. You got to get that bag, my boy. So you have to do whatever you have to do to go, gro- go out and grab it, right? Right. So in this case, back in the early 18, or the late 1800s, early 1900s, people did what they could do for work. I mean, that's the bottom line. Same thing as a lot of people do now. You do what you can for work, and you just do what you do. Later attempts to fit Holmes into the pattern seen in modern serial killers had described him torturing animals and suffering from abuse at the hands of a violent father, but contemporary and eyewitness accounts of his childhood do not provide proof of either. You know, that's one of the big key things that I've always mentioned in whenever I do serial killer uh, episodes. We always we always see that there's some sort of abuse, whether it be sexual, mental, it doesn't matter. There is some sort of abuse that occurs that helps exacerbate the, the serial killer intentions in that individual. We are also very well aware of the fact that when you torture little little animals, little harmless, little helpless animals, you are destined to go on the wrong path and fuck up people. That's that's just the psychology. That's how it goes. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm probably not wrong, but there's not really much that you can do to change that aspect, right? Unless you get intense therapy or your moral compass just outweighs your fucked up compass, right? Right. But, so in this case, it's kind of unexplainable, unexplainable why Mr. H.H. decided to go on that path. Now, when I read you more of what he's, what he's done, you're going to think, well, this doesn't really fit the pattern. And it doesn't, which is what made me want to do this episode and look more into Mr. Holmes. At the age of 16, Holmes graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and later in nearby Alton. On July 4th, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton. Their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born on February 3rd, 1880 in Loudoun, New Hampshire. Robert became a certified public accountant and served as city manager of Orlando, Florida. So it's not much. You know, he married, he graduated, said, hey, I need to go get that bag. I'm going to do this, that. And that's what he did. He got married. Great. Not a big deal. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at age of 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left after one year. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. Listen to what I just read. This dude, at the age of 18, was dissatisfied with the school and left one year later after he enrolled in the University of Vermont, meaning that he wasted a year saying, yo, this isn't for me. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in 1884 after passing his exams. Now, we are talking about the 1800s. So, in the 1800s, what do you do? Well, looks like your leg is fucked up. Let's give you some cocaine and chop it off. I'm pretty sure a lot of people would be able to graduate the surgery of, of for medicine and surgery back in the 1800s. I'm not saying that medicine sucked back then. I'm just saying that medicine sucked back then, if you pick up what I'm putting down. But, I mean, that's still impressive, though. You have this 18-year-old to go in there, graduate. Maybe he graduated 19, 20 years old, but still, the fact that he went into the Department of Medicine in the University of Michigan and graduated two years later. So, yeah, he was uh, 20 years old when he graduated. And so now this dude is a certified, <laughs> a certified, I, I don't know if he's knowledge in this, in this uh, department or would he be considered a doctor, but he passed his exams 
1884 and graduated out of the Department of Medicine and Surgery. Again, this is the guy who was a serial killer, graduated from medicine and surgery at the age of 20. Let that sink in. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor William James Herdman, then the chief of an then the chief anatomy instructor, and the two were said to have been engaged in facilitating grave robbing to supply medical cadavers. Look, man, this is 1800s. Pretty much anything goes. So now, not only is this guy learning on how to fuck people up legitimately, him and the head chief anatomy instructor were out engaging in grave robbing to supply medical cadavers. So what they're doing is they're heading to the graveyard and say, wow, this looks mighty fine here. And the anatomy instructor says, well, yes, it does. But let's go ahead and get this body. And then they dig the motherfucker up, throw him over their shoulder or in a bag. And then they take him back to the, to the college and say, yo, look at what I just found. This reminds me of that insane clown posse, dead body man. They call me the dead body man. Just bring him to me. You know what I mean? So why, oh, why would someone just go and jack? I mean, you have to be a not right person to say, hey, I think I'm just going to go steal a body because I want to. Holmes had a, (laughs) why? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense for you just go grave robbing. Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under Nahum White, who a noted advocate of human dissection. All right. So, you know, let's it's for some reason it's okay to dissect animals. But once you start dissecting humans, all of a sudden it's now don't do it. It's against the moral compass. We shouldn't do that. What the fuck is the difference? They're dead. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder and claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. Look, man, I'm not saying what he did is right. But what I'm saying is that if he was able to put orchestrate and present something so believable that he was able to get life insurance claims. Eh, I mean, again, my hats are off to this guy. Housemates described Holmes as treating Clara violently. And in 1884, before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire and later wrote, she knew little of him afterwards. You know, that goes a lot when it comes to, to serial killers. We have Two, two separate lives. We have one lives that people want on the outside and they see everything that's going on. But behind closed doors, they're a completely different person. They have things that they're just fucking people up left and right. They don't understand why you're so different from when I met you. You know, and, and it's just one of those deals that you can't, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You, you just can't distinguish the two and eventually they're both going to, they're gonna, just going to come to head and they're both going to meet and then just going to fuck you up. That's pretty much what, is going to happen. Am I right or am I right? I know I'm right. After he moved to Morris Forks, New York, a rumor spread that Holmes had been with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place and Holmes quickly left town. Isn't that a little bit suspicious here? He moved to Morris Park, or excuse me, Morris Fork, New York. And then a rumor had spread that he had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts, but because for whatever reason, I couldn't find any detail, there was no investigation. But ironically, coincidentally, Holmes left town shortly after that, after they questioned him about the disappearance of this young boy. He was gone skis. 
Now, look, I'm not a rocket genius, all right? Nor am I a math magician scientist, okay? But what I do know is that if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, this motherfucker killed a kid. That, that, that's pretty much what I'm saying. And you can't deny it. I won't deny it. He later traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State, Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. This dude dosed him. He dosed him and said, take two of these and you're not going to call me in the morning. <laughs> Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city. Right before moving to Chicago, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. So that, that's one thing that I was curious about is like, how am I doing an episode on Henry Howard Holmes, but this last guy's name is Budgie or Budget or what, 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 the, what, what is this guy's real last name? Uh, crab, Mudget. This dude's last name was Mudget, but I'm doing an episode on H.H. Holmes, which doesn't understand, which I didn't understand. But then I later found out, as I'm finding out with you, that he changed his name so he can avoid from being prosecuted and being followed and being being charged. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, this is back in the 1800s. Who's going to realize, well, let me see your birth certificate. I'm sorry, I don't have one. The piece of cardboard that it was written on. Actually, I don't even think they had cardboard back then. So the piece of wood that it was written on burned in a stable file, sir. And I, and I just I just can't I just can't bring you can't present one to you. In his confession after his res, Holmes claimed he had killed his former medical school classmate Robert Leacock in 1886 for insurance money. Leacock, however, died in Watford, Ontario, in Canada, on October 5, 1889. In late 1886, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Murda Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we're going to see a lot of this stuff. Not we're not going to see a lot of this stuff, but but I noticed that that was the trend, and I'll get into that more. And there's it was crazy that I was reading all this stuff. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Murda, alleging infidelity on her part. The claims could not be proven and the suit went nowhere. Surviving paperwork indicated she probably was never even informed of the suit. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. It was dismissed June 4th, 1891 on the grounds of want of prosecution. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I don't claim to be. I'm not a judge. So I have no idea what on the grounds of want of prosecution means. If anybody out there who is a lawyer, let me know what that means. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram, and you can explain to me exactly what that means because I have no fucking clue what that means. We have somebody here who says, yo, my wife was cheating on me. I'm going to sue the pants off of her. But I can't because her pants are already off because she's cheating on me. She's in. She's an infidel. She's in. She's cheating on me. I know it. But the suit goes nowhere because more than likely she never received the paperwork because, I mean, everything traveled by fucking horseback back in the 1800s. So they never received the goddamn paperwork. And he was probably lying anyway. Not probably. I'm more than more than positive he, he, he was. Holmes had a daughter with Murda, Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July 4th, 1889 in Inglewood, Chicago, Illinois. Lucy became a public school teacher. Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. Holmes married Georgiana Yoke on January 17, 1894 in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and Murda. This dude is just like a fucking serial marrier. He just wants to collect wives. Why? We'll find out. So we all heard of H.H. Holmes and his house of murders. We heard of the hotel... Well, if you haven't, then H.H. Uh, H. Holmes is famous for having a house of murder. I, I didn't know exactly what that was. And so I 
that's one of the reasons why I did today's episode. So let's get into the House of Murders. Holmes arrived in Chicago in August 1886, which is when he began using the name H.H. Holmes. He came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. Holton gave Holmes a job and he proved to be a hardworking employee, eventually buying the store. Although several books portray Holton's husband as an old man who quickly vanished along with his wife. Dr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alum, alumnus only a few years older than Holmes and both Holton's remained in Inglewood throughout Holmes' life and survived well into the 20th century. It is a myth that they were killed by Holmes. Likewise, Holmes did not kill alleged castle victims, Miss Kate Durkee, who turned out to be very much alive. Holmes purchased an empty lot across from the drugstore where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore. A creditor of Holmes named John DeBrill died of a pock Apoplexy? I have no idea what that is. On April 17, 1891, in the drugstore, when Holmes declined to pay the architects or the steel company, Edna Iron and Steel, they sued in 1888. Yeah, give me my money, bitch. In 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition, though the hotel portion was never completed. In 1892, the hotel was somewhat completed with three stories and a basement. The ground floor was the storefront. That makes sense, right? You're, you're in the money. You just bought a drugstore. Business is good. Why not find and make something to where you're going to be able to have access to it anytime you want? Fictionalized accounts report that Holmes constructed the hotel to lure in tourists visiting the nearby World's Fair in order to murder them and sell the skeletons to medical schools. See, that is why I did this episode. I originally heard and thought that H.H. Holmes was luring all these tourists in by the World's Fair and they, that he was just fucking them up through all these tunnels and all the basements in order for them to, to him to make even more money selling their bodies to medical students. I never, ever, ever doubted that because it sounded legit, right? I believe everything that's on the internet as, as well as should you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's no evidence that Holmes ever tried to lure strangers into his hotel to murder them. In fact, none of his likely victims were strangers. Holmes did have a history of selling cadavers to medical, medical schools. However, he acquired his wares through grave robbing rather than murder. It blows my mind. All this was a lie? You're going to tell me lies that he did all of this? Why? Why would you lie to me about something I wholeheartedly believed? Now my heart is broken and I'm very upset. Reports by the Yellow Press labeled the building as Holmes' murder castle, claiming the structure contained secret torture chambers, trap doors, gas chambers, and a basement crematorium. None of these claims were true. Then where did I, re I read somewhere that Holmes had all these actually constructed inside of this hotel and that they were legitimately there? Now you're telling me that it's a fucking lie? Bullshit. Other accounts claim that the hotel was made up of over 100 rooms and laid out like a maze with doors opening into brick walls, windowless rooms, and dead in staircases. That's what I believed. I believed all of that stuff. In reality, the hotel floor was moderately sized and largely unremarkable. It did contain some hidden rooms, but they were used for hiding furniture Holmes bought on credit and did not intend to pay for. This fool had secret rooms, but he decided to hide his merch that he bought and didn't want to pay for. Come on now. Maybe I should build one of those in my house. I should buy a secret room where I can just hide all my shit and no one can ever find it. The hotel was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested, but was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. 
Beside his infamous murder castle, Holmes also had a one-story factory which he claimed was to be used for glass bending. It is unclear if the factory furnace was ever used for glass bending. It was speculated to have been used to destroy incriminating evidence of Holmes' crimes. Well, you know, why? Why, why, oh, why? Oh, did I believe all of this bullshit? And now that I'm here reading about it with my own two eyeballs, that all of this shit was a fucking lie. I, this, again, this is one of the reasons why I chose to do H.H. Holmes because I was fascinated with his alleged murder castle to find out that it was nothing to do of the sort. Bullshit. Let's get into his early victims because, again, he did murder some people. And for some reason, people decided, hey, this guy seems trustworthy because he doesn't want to kill me. (laughs) But then he ended up killing him. So let's get into some early victims. One of Holmes' early victims was his mistress, Julia Smith. She was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes' building and began working at his pharmacy, at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. After Connor found out about Smith's affair with Holmes, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smith and her daughter Pearl behind. That's fucked up. Smith gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing her relationship with Holmes. How are you going to just leave your wife and say, yo, I'm done. I'm washing my hands with you. You can have him. You can have him. You can have her. I don't give a shit anymore. I don't want him. I think he was trying to get out of that marriage from the beginning. Julia and Pearl disappeared on Christmas Eve of 1891, and Holmes later claimed she had died during an abortion. Despite his medical background, Holmes was unlikely to be experienced in carrying out abortions, and mortally from such a por- <laughs> and mortality from such a procedure was high at that time. No shit. They were literally doing with like a horse iron and a fucking glove. Of course, abortions had a high mortality rate. Holmes claimed to have poisoned Pearl, likely to hide the circumstances of her mother's death. A partial skeleton, possibly of a child around Pearl's age, was found when excavating Holmes' cellar. Pearl's father, Ned, was a key witness at Holmes' trial in Chicago. Why? why, why, Leave the kids alone. Always leave the kids alone. Emmeline Sigrande began working in the building in May 1892 and disappeared that December. Rumors, Rumors following her disappearance claimed she had gotten pregnant by Holmes, possibly being a victim of another failed abortion that Holmes tried to cover up. Maybe, oh, maybe you shouldn't try having abortions. Or even better, how about just don't put your dick in them and you just leave the women alone? That that, that would probably have been a better deal for you. Another young girl who had worked for Holmes in his building named Emily Van Tassel vanished as well. While working in the Chemical Bank building on Dearborn Street, Holmes met and became close friends with Benjamin Pitzel, a carpenter with a criminal past who who was exhibiting in the same building, a coal bin he had invented. Holmes used Pat... Petzl as his right-hand man for several crime schemes. A district attorney later described Petzl as Holmes' tool, his creature. Goddamn, that's fucked up. In 1893, a one-time actress named Minnie Williams moved to Chicago. Holmes claimed to have met her in an employment office, though there were rumors he had met her in Boston years earlier. He offered her a job at the hotel as his personal stenographer, and she accepted. Holmes persuaded Williams to transfer the deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, an alias of Holmes. You know, this is one of the big things about H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes wasn't, yeah, he was a killer, but he was trying to work out abortions that he had no idea how to do. So he killed several women, except for the kid that I don't know why he killed or how he killed. But the biggest thing about H.H. Holmes, which was very disappointing, was that he was a big time con man. He was able to get people to sign over their life insurances, sign over property, sign over things that they shouldn't have signed over to him, over to him. And it didn't make any sense how he was so smooth on the flip to get it done. Like in this instance, 
He persuaded Williams to transfer a, a property in Fort Worth, Texas, to a man named Alexander Bond, who in reality was just Holmes himself. In 1893, Williams transferred the deed with Holmes serving as the notary. Holmes later signed the deed over to Peitzel, giving him the alias Benton T. Lyman. The next month, Holmes and Williams, presenting themselves as husband and wife, rented an apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park. Doesn't make any sense to me. Many sister Annie came to visit, and in July, she wrote to her aunt that she planned to accompany brother Harry to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were seen alive after July 5th, 1893. Just gone. Just all of a sudden done. They dead makes it just killed him. Although not proven, Holmes was suspected of killing six other persons who vanished between 1891 and 1895. Dr. Rustler, who had an office in the castle, went missing in 1892. Kitty Kelly, a stenographer for Holmes, also went missing in 1892. John G. Davis of Greenville, Pennsylvania, went to visit the 1893 World's Fair and vanished. In 1920, his daughter asked that he be declared legally dead. All because they went around this guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why they they, they dubbed that the murder castle. Simply for the fact that whenever people were going around there, a lot of people didn't come back and they just died. I wonder why. I wonder why, oh, why did they die? Oh, maybe because Holmes was fucking them up. That, I mean, what other reason is there to be to be concerned about? It doesn't make any sense. It, ah, boy, I tell you. Henry Walker of Greensburg, Indiana, who went missing in November 1893, was alleged to have insured his life to Holmes for 20000 and wrote to friends that he was working for Holmes in Chicago. Milford Cole of Baltimore, Maryland, was alleged to have disappeared after receiving a telegram from Holmes to come to Chicago in July 1894. An otherwise unknown victim was a Lucy Burbank, her bank book was found in the castle in 1895. I mean, we could tell that this guy was all about his money. And what other way to get his money other than trying to scam people and then killing them and say, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know, boss. They were there. They were there yesterday and today they're not. Let's get into more killings. With insurance companies pressing to prosecute him for arson, Holmes left Chicago in July 1894. He reappeared in Fort Worth where he had inherited property for the Williams sister at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. Here, he once again attempted to build an incomplete structure without paying his suppliers and contracting. This building was not a site of any additional killings. In July 1894, Holmes was arrested and briefly jailed for the first time on the charge of selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri. He was promptly bailed out, but while in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted outlaw named Marion Hedgepeth who was serving a 25-year sentence. Holmes had concocted a plan to swindle an insurance company out of 10000 by taking out a policy on himself then faking his death. That was a common thing for the, for the longest time. I think I, the most recent one, as I heard, was back in the early 2000s where this company man was kind of going under. I, can't, I don't remember the name. You can look it up or you can fact check me on that. I don't know the exact story, but I know the roundabout story. I just know that this, this company man was losing some dough. He had himself insured for like two point something million dollars. Faked his death. His wife was the was the guarantor, of course. And then all of a sudden, it was like literally one day to the next, she flew out to another country. And lo and behold, guess who was there? The dead guy. <laughs> and I'm not talking about like Weekend at Bernie's dead. I'm talking about like dead, dead. I'm, I mean, not like, I'm not talking about like he was there like Weekend at Bernie's. I'm talking about just, he was just dead, dead in the ground. He, he wasn't out there partying in a tracksuit. Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Holmes was directed to a young St. Louis attorney named Jep- Jephthah Howe. Howe thought Holmes' scheme was brilliant and agreed to play a part. Where the fuck do people come up with these names? Jephthah? 
Je- Jephthah, get the fuck out of here. Nevertheless, Holmes' plan to fake his own death failed when the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay. Holmes did not press the claim. Instead, he concocted a similar plan with Peitzel. When you fail, what do you do? You give up? No, you try, try again. You decide to pick up, let's bring up something else, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to fake it with you now, my boy. Petzl agreed to fake his own death so that his wife could collect on a $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was to split with Holmes and Howe. The scheme, which was to take place in Philadelphia, called for Peitzel to set himself up as an inventor under the name of B.F. Perry and then be killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. Holmes was to find an appropriate cadaver to play the role of Peitzel. Instead, Holmes killed Peitzel by knocking him unconscious with chloroform and setting his body on fire with the use of benzene. In his confusion, Holmes implied Peitzel was still alive after he used the chloroform on him before he set him on fire. He chloroformed himself. <laughs> so he chloroformed Peitzel, set him on fire. And then on top of that said, yo, let me chloroform myself so it doesn't look so suspicious. And this motherfucker said, nah, he's still alive, but he's dead. <laughs> what? H.H. Holmes wasn't very bright. What, what was he? However, forensic evidence presented at Holmes' later trial showed chloroform had been administered after Petzl's death a fact of which the insurance company was unaware, presumably to fake suicide to exonerate Holmes should he be charged with murder. What what amazes me is that this was back in the late 1800s. This was back when investigation stuff wasn't really big out there, like the autopsy and everything wasn't all that prevalent. Prevalent. Excuse me on my mispronunciation of the word. But they were able to find that the that the chloroform was administered after the body had been dead. How? How, how did they do that? It just blows my mind. I don't get it. I wish I knew. But I mean, we can't even do it takes like 27 years for them to figure that shit out now. And our medical, I mean, and our medical science has quadrupled in progression. And you're telling me back in the 1800s, they could say, oh, yeah, this boy was dead already, and they put chloroform in him. Charge him. I don't get it. I don't, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't understand. Can somebody help me out? Let's continue. Holmes collected the insurance payout on the basis of the genuine Petzl corpse. Holmes then went on to manipulate Petzl's unsuspecting wife into allowing three of her five children, Ellis, Nellie, and Howard, to be placed in his custody. The eldest daughter and the baby remained with Ms. Petzl. How the fuck do you get manipulated and, and bamboozled into giving up three of your kids? Well, I mean... What what blows my mind here is that this lady said, I do declare, Mr. Holmes, I think I should just give you three of my children. You seem like such a good man. I think I'll give you over my children. Here you go. I mean, can somebody explain it? Brian, Chubox, Albert, can you guys explain to me how this woman was manipulated into giving up three of her kids? Into into his custody, saying those are my kids now, bitch. You know, I I don't I don't get it. Am I am I? I mean, this dude had to be the slickest fucking con man that you can ever think of, in order for him to manipulate so many people into believing that he was a legit dude. I mean, help me understand what I'm not understanding. Holmes and the three Petzl children traveled throughout the northern United States and into Canada. Simultaneously, he escorted Miss Petzl along a parallel route, all the while using various aliases and lying to Mrs. Petzl concerning her husband's death. 
Holmes claimed Petzl was hiding in London, as well as lying to her about the true whereabouts of her three missing children. In Detroit, just before entering Canada, they were only separated by a few blocks. That takes some fucking balls, man. They were all in the same area, just a couple streets away. And he was all, hey, how you doing? Mr. Holmes, do you know where my children are? No, I don't know. But I'm going to go home. He just goes to the next street over, and then he's fucking home with the kids there. Crazy. In an even more audacious move, Holmes was staying at another location with his wife, who was unaware of the whole affair. God damn. Now, talk about slick on the backside. This dude had a mistress a few blocks away, and then he was with his other wife at the new house with kids that didn't belong to him. And she was all, wow, I think I feel like, like having beef stew tonight. Yeah, sorry, I just ate at my mistress's house. I mean, my friend's house. Holmes later confessed to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one of the hose through, oh my gosh. He drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose through the hole, attaching the other end to a gas line to asphyxiate the girls. What the fuck, man? This fool just gas chambered these kids for no goddamn reason. Why? Oh, see, oh boy, I tell you. See, I knew there was something wrong with Mr. Holmes, but I didn't know that he went to the to these extremes when it came to murdering. I mean, when you're murdering adults, I get it. Fine, you do what you have to do. But come on, for the kids, the little chillins, come on, boy, I tell you. And that's fucked up. He asphyxiated. He put he, he made a homemade gas chamber, put him in there, and said, "Good night. Call the Sandman." Holmes buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house at 16th Street, Vin- Street, Vincent Street in Toronto. This home and address no longer exist, St. Vincent Street having long since been realigned into a part of Bay Street. Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective assigned to investigate Holmes and find the three missing children, found the decomposed bodies of the two Pitel girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. What the hell is somebody from Philadelphia going all the way up to Toronto to figure this shit out? That- that's crazy to me. Detective Geyer wrote, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being on that team, digging this this up out of just suspicion? And then knowing that your confirmed suspicion is, is greeted by a mal fucking odor that's just beating the shit out of your nose. And then you find a bone that belongs to a human. I couldn't, I couldn't understand, I couldn't imagine being on that team, finding this, smelling that, and being okay for the rest of my life. Geyer then wrote to Indianapolis where Holmes had rented a cottage. Holmes was reported to have visited a local pharmacy to purchase the drugs which he used to kill young Howard Peitzel and the repair, and a repair shop to sharpen the knives he used to chop up the body before he burned it. The boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the Holmes chimney. God damn. This dude just had no remorse. He's like, I'm just going to get away with it, no matter what. So all bad things come to an end eventually, right? Sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't, you know? And so, but this time it is the end of Holmes. Let's go ahead and get into exactly how it ended. Holmes' murder spree finally ended when he was arrested in Boston on November 17th, 1894, after being tracked there from Philadelphia by the private Pinkerton National Detective Agency. He was held on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because the authorities had become more suspicious at this point and Holmes appeared poised to flee the country in the company of his unsuspecting third wife. 
This fool just serial marrier left, right. I marry you, you marry me. We all get married. Let's go ahead and do it. Now, if you want to steal a horse in Texas in the 1800s, you know shit's going to go bad. And then I never realized that the Pinkerton was an actual detective agency. I always thought that the Pinkertons were just a bank hired police force, I, I guess, like a, like a, a more upgraded Brinks uh, uh, guard system. I, I didn't realize that the Pinkertons were actually legitimate detective agency. I had no clue until I read this and I looked into it. And yeah, the Pinkertons were up for hire. Pinkertons would get involved in a bunch of shit and say, yo, we'll, we'll solve this. We'll, we'll figure all this out. And when I was that age, back in the 1800s, I probably would have joined the Pinkertons had I been old enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> Brian, yo, hey, George, I know you're listening to this as well. If back in 1894, how was it looking at the Pinkertons in their fancy uniform, walking around in the, in the open streets, walking their horses behind them? Let me know. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com or you can text me. In July 1895, following discovery of Alice and Nellie's body, Chicago police and reporters began investigating Holmes Building in Inglewood, now locally referred to as the Castle. Though many sensational claims were made, no evidence was found which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago. According to Selzer, stories of torture equipment found in the building are 20, 20th century fiction. See, I thought it was, I thought Holmes was like this big ass sadistic torturer person. I thought he had the, the, the body stretchers, I thought he had the head removers. You know, the Tweedledoos, the Tweedledon'ts. I thought he had the, the, the rocket line. I thought he had everything in that murder castle. That's what made me so intrigued and what made me want to do this episode. Now to come find out, he didn't have not one goddamn thing there. Not one, not one, never died, not goddamn thing there. In October 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Patzel and was found guilty and sentenced to death. By then, it was evident Holmes had also murdered the three missing Patzel children as well. Oh, I tell you. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some people he confessed to murdering were still alive. And his six attempted murders... <laughs> what? Holmes was paid... Well, hold on, let me reread that because that didn't make any sense to me. Following his conviction, Holmes confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto, though some people he confessed to murdering were still alive. Were still alive and six attempted murders. Oh, okay, now that makes sense. He confessed to 27 murders, and he, he had, uh, confessed to six attempted murders. That, the way I, I typed this out made no sense to me. Holmes was paid 7500 by the Hearst newspapers in exchange for his confession, which was quickly found to be mostly nonsense. I'm getting more than 7500 my boy. I'm look, you're looking at $20 million. But this was back in the 1800s, so that money wasn't even invented yet. While writing his confessions in prison, Holmes mentioned how drastically his facial appearance had changed since his imprisonment. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged at Moya Monsing Prison, also known as the Philadelphia County Prison for the murder of Peitzel. Until the moment of his death, Holmes remained calm and amiable, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. That went out like a G. He said, bring it to me. I don't give a fuck. And they said, hang me, bitch. <laughs> No fear, showing very few signs of fear, anxiety, or depression. He knew it. He knew it was, it was done. Despite this, he asked for his coffin to be contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was concerned grave robbers would steal his body and use it for a dissection. Yeah, they're going to come and steal the same body. They're going to steal you after all the bodies of people that you stole that were related to the people that are going to come steal you. They're going to fuck your body up. Yeah, 
You know it, very fact. Holmes' neck did not break. He instead strangled to death slowly, twitching for over 15 minutes before being pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap had been sprung. Here's the crazy thing is that back in that day, hangings were, were public. They, they, you would publicly get hanged by the prison or in, this, or in the middle of, of the town center. And it blows my mind. Can you imagine sitting there eating some caramel popcorn, sipping on some juicy juice, and then all of a sudden you look at him, the guy's just fucking twitching because his neck didn't break, so he died a slow agonizing death and you're there at a, as a wee little lad like five to ten years old watching some dude struggle for his life as it's being slowly sucked out of his body this, this, I mean, shit like that was public there's the arguments that now that people say oh execution should be public again to teach everybody a lesson no it shouldn't <laughs> number one you know how you know how traumatizing that is to people it's crazy Upon his execution, Holmes' body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, a Catholic cemetery in the Philadelphia western suburb of Yeadon, Pennsylvania. On New Year's Eve 1909, Hedgepeth, who had been pardoned for informing on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jaburk during a holdup at a Chicago saloon. On March 7, 1914, the Chicago Tribune reported that with the death of Patrick Quinlan, the former caretaker of the castle, the mysteries of the mysteries of Holmes Castle would remain explained. Would remain unexplained. I am. I do apologize. Quinlan had committed suicide by taking strict nine. See, and that's what makes me wonder what exactly went on, went on in that castle. Just for the fact that it was the, the, the caretaker of the castle committed suicide. So did he really have bodies buried throughout the, the entire castle? Were there really torturous devices? I mean, no, nothing was found when it was deconstructed and investigated. None of that was found. But could it have been moved? Maybe, maybe it was used as a torture rape center for women. You know what I mean? Or men, for just a rape center in general. But none of that was ever discovered. And because the caretaker killed himself, no one's ever going to know. And I think that's what makes this so, so fascinating. His body was found in the bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. Quinlan's surviving relatives claimed he had been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. The castle itself was mysteriously gutted by fire in August 1895. According to a newspaper clipping from the New York Times, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. It was fucking arsonist. I mean, they burned it down. Something happened there. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. Afterwards, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the backstep of the building. The building survived the fire and remained in use until it was torn down in 1938. The site is occupied by the Inglewood branch of the United States Postal Service. In 2017, amid allegations, Holmes had in fact escaped execution. Holmes' body was exhumed for testing led by Janet Monge of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of the Archaeology and Anthropology. What the hell? In 2017... Amid allegations, Holmes had in fact escaped execution. Why would they, how are you going to say that he escaped execution when people watched him die? And of course, they're going to say, oh, no, we got this whose body. Why? Because I'm a medical student and it's now mine. That The body's mine, bitch. Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. Holmes was then reburied. Can you imagine getting re 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 getting unburied? 
and then resurfaced and all of a sudden all your shit's intact. Your clothes are on point. No wrinkles and your mustache is still there. Like, look at me, bitch. Sheen. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm glad that they reburied him. But just to just to confirm that it was Holmes indeed. It was one of those deals that, look, man, I'm tired of this. We're going to end it right here. It's done. Surprise, motherfucker. You're dead. And it's just one of those deals that, you know, it just had to be done. Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. Let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. I thought this episode was going to be a lot longer. It wasn't as interesting as I thought it was going to be. I do apologize for the lackluster episode. I was just so intrigued that this was more of an informational episode for myself. And I wanted to share with everybody else. And it was, H.H. Holmes was very disappointing to me. Yeah, he murdered a few people. A few, most of them were botched abortion attempts. He did kill the the Pitzel guy because of what you know, whatever reason. He fucked up those kids, which is never okay. You know, I mean, he was a serial killer by definition. Three or more bodies. If you have killed somebody, you're considered a serial killer. So yeah, he was a serial killer. That that's that's evident. However, it was just a very underwhelming investigation, a very underwhelming detailed report. It was very underwhelming in so many parts. He was a con man, number one. He wanted that money. He didn't really want to work. And he did whatever he could for whatever reason, you know? Yeah, his his upbringing wasn't typical of those of serial killers. And it's not very typical of those that you would think would end up becoming a serial killer. But the bottom line is that there's there was some sort of imbalance in his brain that caused him to do what he did. Is it his still his fault? Look. You have the moral compass and the right and wrong to know. You know, this, I know a lot of people are sick to a certain degree and they just can't control themselves. I understand that. But this guy clearly knew what he was doing. This guy clearly had ill intent and he just wanted to off people and get their money. I mean, it's fucked up. So by to end the show, we're going to go ahead and end it. And what I'm going to say is I do apologize for the show being kind of kind of this episode kind of being sucky. I will make it up to you next episode. I promise I'm going to find one of the baddest episodes I can find. If you have suggestions, please let me know, graveyardgrumbler at mail.com, or you can just direct message me on Instagram at graveyardgrumblerpodcast. Just let me know. I want you guys to know. I don't care what part of the country you are from, what part of the world you are from. It doesn't bother me. Send in your request for episode suggestions, and I will do everything in my power to make sure that the episode will get released. The only problem that I run into is not having enough information to make even a 20-minute episode. My minimum for episodes are 30 minutes. If I can't get anything that's up to 30 minutes, I probably won't release it. I know I have a few really short ones when I first started out, but I, I like to have my episodes 30 minutes to an hour long. I just That's just my comfort zone. I enjoy doing podcasts. So I, I, send me your episode requests. I will get them done. Just make sure that there's a lot of information that I can easily pull up and get them done. I I do work a very busy job. I I do have a career outside of podcasting that I I dedicate a lot of my life to. So I need need readily available information so I can pump out a podcast, so I can pump out the episode. So again, my deepest apologies that this H.H. Holmes episode was kind of lame. If you found it interesting, thank you very much. I found it interesting, although I was extremely let down I found it so interesting that I wanted to put it out as as an episode. So I did that and I have no regrets. But again, if you found it boring, I apologize. I will make it up. I found it interesting that it was such a letdown and people glorified this guy up into the heavens about his torture castle, his murder castle, and none of it was even true. That I think that was the worst part for me. I mean, yeah, the kids, don't get me wrong. The kids were were extremely bad, but knowing that 
everything was just legend and tale and myth was really fucking disappointing. I thought he had like 3,477 bodies and all this other shit, but it, he didn't have any of it. So I'm thinking about doing Jack the Ripper next. Again, that was another killer that I'm interested in. I will look into the evidence, I mean, to the reports and see how interesting it is. If, if I find it interesting enough, I'll put it out. If not, then I'll, I'll find something else. I promise I'll make it up for you. Other than that, we'll go listen to my Patreon. It's $5, one tier. I release episodes as much as I can. I try to do at least two a month for five bucks. I think that's a pretty good deal. But I, there's times where I'll do four or five. Sometimes I'll do three. Again, I, I try to do a bare minimum of two. Just go give me your support. I appreciate you. Five bucks, one tier. I'm releasing this badass episode that was suggested by a Patreon subscriber that I didn't even realize was the deal. I watched the movie and it was fucking awesome. I might stand up, I might put a clip on it when I get to when I get it completed. I might put a little piece of it on my Instagram and hopefully people will in will enjoy it and go subscribe. Thank you very much. Share my podcast, listen to my podcast, do everything you have to do to grow my podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you. And as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. Today's episode is sponsored by Struggle Snuggles Ball Pythons. Struggle Snuggles is a small hobbyist breeder who wants to share the joy of ball pythons with new and experienced snake enthusiasts. Struggle Snuggle offers different types of morphs and standard non-morph pythons. Struggle Snuggle will offer insight on the first-time python owners and is available via email for questions on the continuation for healthy care of your new python. You can reach Struggle Snuggle through his Instagram at strugglesnuggle32257. That's strugglesnuggle32257. So you can get a look at the different type of snakes that he does own. Again, strugglesnuggle32257. His Instagram handle will be in the show notes. This is the end. This is the end. This is the end. Beautiful friend. Graveyard Grumbler Graveyard Podcast. Grumbler.